0: Welcome to C-Diff Spores and More with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C-Diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala.
1: Welcome to the program and thank you so much for joining us today. We thank our sponsor, Summit Therapeutics, for making this special series possible. Summit Therapeutics is a leader in antibiotic innovation and has a clear strategy through new science and philosophy. They are creating new opportunities to become the standard of care for serious infectious diseases. To learn more, please visit their website, www.summitplc.com. This series consists of the keynote speakers from the 8th Annual International C. diff. Conference and Health Expo. We hope you will enjoy today's show.
2: I'd like to introduce Dr. Mark Wilcox. Mark is a consultant microbiologist, head of microbiology and academic lead pathology at Leeds Teaching Hospital. He's a professor of microbiology at the University of Leeds and in their Institute of Biomedical and Clinical Sciences. And I could go on, but I'd take up his entire talk. Uh, I, I want to thank Mark for taking a time out from an overwhelming task he's taken on, and that is uh, dealing with the COVID outbreak in the UK. Mark Uh, Take it away and welcome.
3: Hello. um, Good afternoon and thank you for the kind introduction, Uh, Stu, it's good to hear your voice. It's also good to have heard Dale's voice, which I um, haven't heard for um, about nine or ten months. Uh, Congratulations, Dale, on the Destiny Farmer news, I I knew that and I know that you knew I knew that, but I'm really pleased that things are moving forward again. Okay, I'm, I'm assuming that I've got control of the presentation. I, I also want to say thank you to Nancy, and typically Nancy, she doesn't let a pandemic get in the way of, um, of, of this meeting. Uh, okay, we can't meet face-to-face, but rather than give up and uh, wait till next year, uh, true to form, um, she perseveres. So congratulations and thank you, Nancy, for everything you do. So in the next 20 minutes, I'm going to talk about DNA fingerprinting um, and how we've been using this over the last seven years or so um, to understand the transmission of C. diff. Not solely in hospitals, but I I am going to concentrate on the the hospital transmission story in this talk. Okay, so um, one slide to introduce DNA fingerprinting. the bottom right-hand news item was the first example of DNA fingerprinting being used to convict a murderer and, and that happened in England in a, a murder that happened in Leicestershire in the middle of England and over 30 years ago, 1986 to be precise. Um, and um, as we all know now, DNA fingerprinting, um, sometimes with actual fingerprints, fingerprints of, of fingers and, and so on, um, are, are the standard way in which the police try and match um, whether, whether information left at the screen at the scene of the crime, DNA or fingerprints match those of the um, alleged perpetrator. Um, but um, and doing uh, DNA analysis of human DNA is substantially more complicated um, than doing DNA analysis of bacterial DNA. And that's simply because, as the box in the top right hand corner here shows, there's a vast, vastly greater amount of DNA and um, therefore the bases that form DNA. So a megabase contains a million bases and the human DNA has 3,000 megabases. So that's 3,000 million bases um, of DNA in each cell in the human body. Bacteria are much poorer when it comes to uh, DNA. and You can see there only 4.5 million Uh, bases um, uh, in the average E. coli. So it's an awful lot easier to analyse the DNA uh, in bacteria than humans. Because of that, in humans, rather than examine every single base and compare every single base across those 3,000 million in number, you look in particular areas of the human genome and they're illustrated in the box on the left-hand side. Whereas because there's relatively few, only four and a half million bases in bacteria, you can actually look at virtually all of them and look to see and line them up and see um, do the bases for this strain match the bases for another strain. So if you're going to do this, you have to first of all... carry out a, a series of preliminary experiments and the most important ones really to see whether you've got a chance of using this approach with bacteria are summarised in these two boxes. First of all, um, you, um, you need to work out I mean, how stable is the DNA um, in, um, in bacteria because we know the DNA in humans is very stable other than unfortunately sometimes in some cells which can mutate and become cancerous. But um, in bacteria, of course, um, because they replicate every 20 minutes or so if left to their own devices and conditions are good, then there's enormous potential for the DNA to mutate the next time or the time after that or the time after that and so on that the bacteria or the progeny multiply So you have to establish that there's not a whole series of mutations happening every time bacteria um, multiply, otherwise DNA fingerprinting would be um, potentially useless or certainly very limited when trying to match one bacteria, one strain of bacterium with another. The good news is that to see this, the clock rate, the natural mutation rate, is less than one of these, these um, SNPs, we call them these, these base regions, less than one of those per, per bug per year. So that's, that's extremely stable and it means that you can indeed compare strains over time um, and indeed, if they're years apart, you just simply say that, well, you could, you could end up one of these mutations every year, so I, I need to fact that into, into the maths when you're trying to compare strains. The other thing you have to do, of course, is to establish whether the technique itself um, is reproducible. It gives you the same answer time after time after time. And the answer is it does. That it's very reproducible, only one error in every... 90 genomes, bacterial genomes that you look at. So that means we've got a, we've got the basis for, for moving forward with DNA fingerprinting. And the first major study uh, we did um, was published uh, way back now uh, in 2013. Uh, and this is the, uh, the publication in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, and uh, I was uh, Honoured uh, enough to be um, to have been working for two or three years or so with this group in Oxford, uh, largely in Oxford. There's, there's a few names here that are not Oxford-based. Um, and uh, th- these names and others that are not shown here have become close friends since. Um, so it really was a privilege, one of the highlights of my career, to, to get involved in this work now when we started the work the understanding and the belief based largely on hearsay and also based largely on people investigating c-diff transmission during outbreaks was that the great majority of cases in hospitals c-diff cases in hospitals c-diff infections were actually represented CDF being transmitted from one patient to another, from one case to another. And so we were surprised, and I think it's fair to say that the scientific community was also surprised when we published these data, and we showed that in almost a 1,000 cases, only a third of them could we match within two of these mutations, if you like. Uh, up to, we allowed up to two. Um, from one patient to the next and indeed that that 35 percent is actually smaller proportion still when you just just looked at the hospital-based cases where less than one in five of those could we relate match to a previous case interestingly there was over 10 percent of the cases um, that we we couldn't find any match for at all um, in the hospital or, or community uh, contacts, um, but, but, um, and that's a, a different story. So that, that surprising result of, of actually only the minority of hospital-based cases, as I say, less than one in five, being related to another case, we, we, we decided we need to, to look at the data in another way. And each line of dots, each horizontal line of dots in this graph, and uh, as you move from the left to the right in this graph, that's um, that's time, it's a three-year period. Uh, and as you move from one horizontal line of dots to another one higher up, that represents you've moved from one strain to another. Um, and what we see here um, is that um, the dots if, if um, you'll see that um, if you if you see that as you're moving from one horizontal line to another that represents a new distinct strain and you'll see that as this diagonal line of strains when you plot the data this way that means there's a constant introduction of new genetic genetically different strains into the hospital over time and it appears, you know, therefore that there's, there's a large C. diff reservoir with multiple introductions over time. And it's because of that large reservoir, in this case in the community, introducing gradually over time, that that is actually driving more, driving more the C. diff infections than the, the, pass, the passing of, of strains from one patient to another. But the the, the data I've just showed you, we concentrated entirely for those data on patients with C. Diff infection, as defined by having toxin in their stool. So of course there's another bunch of patients that we ignored in that data set. And that's patients who, yes, could have diarrhoea and they have C. Diff. Um, uh, in their their colon as well, but they didn't have toxin, so didn't fulfil the case definition of C. diff infection. So we did a separate follow-on study where we looked to see um, whether uh, those patients, um, uh, uh, whether they pushed up the transmission rate before we get to those data, I, I did this out of time, because the data I showed you were based on just patients in Oxford, we reproduced the study in six other hospitals in England, just, just here uh, shown as hospitals 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. And essentially what we showed was the same thing. The minority of cases, only the minority could we link with a previous case. These are complicated uh, graphs, which I'm not going to go into for time reasons, but the takeaway message is that the Oxford data published in the New England Journal of Medicine were highly reproducible as we moved from hospital to hospital. These were randomly selected, these were. So I jumped the gun earlier, and and this is back to... If we now look at, rather than just C. diff cases, we include patients who are symptomatic, have C. diff on board, but don't have toxins, so they're not C. diff infections per se, does the story change? We've plotted the data here, and you can see uh, the different shades here to illustrate the different patients. T. S. is a toxigenic strain, FT is fecal toxin, so if you see in blue here, toxigenic strain positive, fecal toxin negative, so that would be a colonised patient with a ward link, and and so on. Again, this is a a complicated graph, but you can see that the proportions here of all the the infections, whether we can link them, are still relatively small, and I'll summarise and um, here, the toxin positive, fe- uh, sorry, toxigenic strain positive, fecal toxin positive cases to so true C. diff infections were three times more likely to be plausibly linked to a previous C. diff infection case. So, and, and there's some more numbers here. And, and, and what this boils down to is that by concentrating on cases, we were getting a true picture that only the minority of cases are linked to previous cases. And when you try and add to that story by looking at toxigenic strain positive but fecal toxin negative patients, you find relatively few extra links. So the hypothesis that, um, that indeed the great majority of cases and um, or indeed carriers and who are symptomatic are not linked to other cases, false true. So we then went on to look at use new DNA fingerprinting in a different way to try and understand what drives or selects for epidemic strains. And I'll have to run through this quite quickly. But what we're particularly interested in is what happened to the black segments of these bars here? These these are ribotype segments. Each colour is a different ribotype, and the black segments over time represent the demise the control of ribotype OT7, which is the MAP1 BI strain uh, essentially. So you can see that that ran from. Being responsible for about 40%, 45% of all the CDF cases in England back in um, 2007, 2008. Uh, and then now it's just uh, its very uncommon for us to find any O27 cases at all. Um, Now, if you look at what happened to C. diff infection, this is a map of what happened in the green bars, reporting C. diff in different ways. And overlaid to that, the lines represent prescribing of antibiotics and in particular prescribing of fluoroquinolones, shown in different ways here. And we, to cut a long story short again we believe and i'll show you the evidence in the next two or three slides that a very powerful selection pressure for ribotype o27 was fluoroquinolone prescribing and just to illustrate that we know that ribotype o27 strains and indeed some other seeded strains are resistant to fluoroquinolone so if you use fluoroquinolones, those resistant strains in theory will have a selection advantage. And what we found when we know that the instance of diff infection in England fell dramatically from about 2007, we had a major public health campaign, but virtually all that decrease as shown in this pink line was due to the demise and the control of fluoroquinolone resistant strains, not of fluoroquinolone susceptible strains, which essentially, and indeed the infections caused by those strains, remained unchanged. And if you look at individual ribotypes, um, and there are some examples here, there's ribotype 027 on the left, 001 in the middle, and 002 on the right, and they represent fluoroquinolone resistant ribotype on the left. In the middle, a mixture, and on the right hand side, they're virtually all fluoroquinolone susceptible. And again, you see the same message that it's the resistant strains that fell away, but the susceptible strains remained the same. And this is just graphically demonstrating that, again, for a much larger number of ribotypes, as named on the x axis at the bottom and uh, when you see a green circle here it means they didn't change and that's all the fluoroquinolone susceptible ones whereas the red circles demonstrate it's the resistance um, uh, 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 fluoroquinolone resistant ribotypes that decreased so they were the ones that were controlled and we believe that's because of of a large reduction uh, in fluoroquinolone prescribing particularly in high-risk individuals in hospitals, namely medical patients, particularly elderly medical patients. So there was a problem though with the data that I showed you from the New England Journal of Medicine. The problem was that some people interpreted that as meaning that hospital transmission of C. C. diff infection, because it was, um, it was not the norm, um, that it wasn't important and that measures to control C. diff infection weren't as important as perhaps we'd always believed they were. And so eager to take away that that possible message, we carried out another study, this time based in Leeds, but, but with my colleagues in Oxford as well. And I I want to just highlight the the last three bullets here. So the the second bullet shows you the risk factors that we demonstrated using DNA fingerprinting. The risk factors, and this is a multivariate analysis, um, for C. diff acquisition. And that was older age, longer inpatient stay, and particular ribotypes were more likely to transmit. And the same factors... Plus, male sex, um, increased the risk of donating your strain. Now, the important takeaway message is that if you, um, a patient who had a plausible donor, in other words, a patient who received C. diff infection from another pre-a prior case of C. diff in case, case, uh, infection, had a significantly greater risk of getting recurrent CDI, in other words, significantly greater risk of harm, and almost, just not quite, a significantly greater risk of dying. So those data show that whilst transmission of CDI, not in an outbreak setting, but in, in a routine sporadic setting, whilst that is the exception rather than the rule, it does matter, it must be present, prevented where it's all possible because the patients who receive um, that that C. diff um, uh, strain and develop C. diff infection are more likely to experience recurrence and they trend towards being more likely to die. There th- is again a complicated slide and I don't want to dwell on this because of time, but Essentially, what this this is showing it's using DNA fingerprinting to to prove what we think we already knew, the scientific community knew, and that, that is that pink the pink ribotype here, which is ribotype 027, has very uh, has relatively much less diversity uh, when you look at all the different strains causing infection in a hospital setting and when you try and categorize them according to how closely they are related and whether they're, not only are they related, but are the patients related in time and place. Whereas the other ribotypes, and, and a good exemplar contrasting type is, is the purple dotted line here, which is ribotype 027, you'll see much greater heterogeneity amongst those strains. And this is a, 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 a DNA fingerprinting way of saying 027 is bad news and it it breeds true, it's transmissible, it causes poor outcomes. So the summary from that that follow-on study um, here is uh, is really backing up that we believe that C. Diff has different reservoirs in, in the community, possibly in the food chain and I haven't shown you evidence for that today. The risk of acquiring C. Diff from a recent case is associated with poorer outcomes and so we, we must be, be taking whatever measures we can to prevent transmission and that we can factor it, look at patients and work out who are at increased risk of not only donating CDF to other patients but of receiving C. diff from other patients. Thank you for listening.
0: We hope you are enjoying listening to the keynote speakers of the 8th Annual International Virtual C. Conference and Health Expo Sponsored by Summit Therapeutics Learn more about how Summit Therapeutics is advancing innovative therapies Visit the Summit Therapeutics website at summitplc.com I want
2: to uh, introduce to you uh, Katerina Arnetto. Dr. Arnetto is a clinical instructor in the NYU Division of Gastroenterology. Uh, She is co-director of the CDIF Global Telesupport Program of which she is going to talk today. So take it away Katerina.
4: All right, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you everybody for being here. Uh, So um, We'll be talking very briefly about the CDIS Global Telesupport Network, and this is of all the things I've collaborated with Dr. set in, in um, trying to organize. It's been one of the most fulfilling things we've, we've done together. So what is, what is it that we do? We really have a conversation with the patients, and the way we start every conversation when patients call in uh, to a particular phone number, they can call in uh, from over 50 countries in the, throughout the world, is we ask them what would you like to talk about so we want to know what uh, what the patient wants out of this uh, conversation and just to give you a flavor for what, what patients ask and what we do and how we try to help them um, these are some very commonly asked questions so a lot of times patients will ask how i got this? how did i get this and we play detective sometimes they tell us you know where what medications they've been receiving who they have been exposed to that type of thing and and sometimes they have all these lingering questions, unresolved things, and it helps them understand, you know, how they got to where they are. I think that that um, makes them feel a bit more comfortable with where they are. A lot of patients ask a second question. Almost every patient that we talk to asks, um, basically says, I'm cured, but I'm afraid. They tell me, the doctor says I'm fine, uh, but I'm afraid this could come back. And this is extremely common. I I had a patient who actually told me once many years ago, I think that I have PTSD. I think I have post-traumatic stress disorder from this. Uh, And this is something we want to talk about and see what we can do to help. You know, there are, of course, risk factors for recurrence, and we want to see to what extent they're modifiable, for example, and give empower the patients with some information about the risk of having a recurrence. We also get this question very often. They tell me I'm cured, but I still have symptoms. So as we all know here, a lot of patients, about one in four patients who have a C. diff infection, develop uh, post-infectious IBS. So uh, we have to remind patients that this is not like any other infection. It's not like having had a cold or something like that, where once it's gone, it's gone. Your immune system takes care of it with or without the help of some sort of antimicrobial. is a little bit different. A lot of patients have uh, symptoms after they no longer have active fetal colitis. They also ask us a lot about eating, what to eat. And a number of times, and this is probably related to the fear of having a recurrence, patients will have put themselves in a very restrictive diet. So we try to encourage them to gradually normalize their, their diet and tell them according to their symptoms what we think could be appropriate. And um, I think the, the Foundation Network also uh, can be helpful in a number of ways, but there's a lot of resources if you look at their website, and also there's a registered dietitian that I'll mention a little bit that can be of a lot of help. Uh, another question that we get is how to prevent this. So patients who have had C. difficile in the past, a lot of times are taking probiotics, but they're worried that they might have to take antibiotics in, in the future, And they wouldn't know how to talk to their doctor if they're about to prescribe an antibiotic. What should they tell them? And it helps them, I believe, to know a little bit about this, to know, for example, what antibiotics uh, are more risky than others, um, whether or not it would make sense to take, for example, a vancomycin prophylaxis during the course of antibiotics so the patients feel empowered. They know that if somebody is going to prescribe antibiotics for an infection, if it's indicated and all that, how to have that conversation with their doctor. And then finally, a lot of patients want to connect to people who have gone through something similar. Um, You know, they all have, uh, most of them have a family that they talk to, but it's different when you can relate. You can tell your story, and it's somewhat similar to other people's stories, so you feel you're not alone. Uh, When we do this with Dr. Feuerstadt, it's uh, the fourth month of, uh, fourth month, fourth Monday of every month at 6 p.m., and uh, as I was mentioning before, this, they can reach us um, from the US, of course, and from 57 countries total. And also, there is nutrition support uh, with a registered dietitian, Karen and Factor. And this is on the third Saturday of every month at 9 in the morning. So, we talk about with patients not about the treatment of their C. appeal, the but also about nutrition, about mental health, as we were saying before about environmental safety at home. A lot of times patients are concerned not so much about themselves, but about a family member who may be older or may be immunosuppressed and how to protect them. So there are three things. I just put three slides together. I just have one picture each, but the first thing we do is listen. And a lot of times for patients I think it's good to tell the story and have somebody listen to everything. And it helps them think about it a little bit differently, helps them process what they've been through. Secondly, I think the significant role now in the era of a lot of information, we try to help filter information. So you can see here, there's a patient sitting on this chair, and this lady who's some sort of administrator, she says, you can't list your iPhone as your primary care physician. And a lot of people do this, and, uh, you know, even doctors do this a lot. Uh, They get themselves into this uh, almost addictive thing of seeking more information. And there's a lot of good information, of course, online, but there's a lot of bad information and sometimes it's very hard to get rid of a bad idea that the patient already has. And there are a lot of things like that, particularly scary idea, seems to be particularly sticky. So, uh, you know, patients will say things like, I'm told that once I have C. diff, I can never be cured. You know, that type of thing. So we want to some sometimes to get that idea out of somebody's mind, but it's, I think it's really important. And the third thing that we do is, Show the patients that there are options. So if you were to get this again or now that you're getting treatment, um, there are options. There are great drugs now. This is not, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Now we have great options. We have also microbiome restoration therapies that I think Dr. Khanna will be talking about in a little bit. And there are clinical trials. And so we encourage patients also to look into that. But most importantly, we tell them, you are not alone. We are here. Just reach out, and that's all I have to say for today. Thank you very much.
2: Katarina, thank you so much. We all appreciate your work on this uh, project. I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Sahil Kahana. Uh, Dr. Kahana is the assistant professor, if I got that right, or is he an associate professor? He's an associate professor. Sorry about that. The Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Mayo Clinic. In Rochester, Minnesota, he directs the C. Seal Clinic, fecal Microbiotic transplantation Program, and C. CDI, Diff Related Clinical Trials the Male Clinic. Uh, Sahil has been uh, a major force in f and in understanding the microbiome uh, clinical aspects. Sahil, appreciate you being able to talk to us today. Thank you.
5: Thank you very much, Stu, uh, for that introduction, and thank you, Nancy, for inviting me so, oh, yet one more time, uh, and I'm very excited to be here today. I'm going to talk uh, over the next 15 to 20 minutes uh, describing the data for microbiome restoration for recurrent death. I'll talk briefly about some of the adverse events that we've noticed with fecal transplantation, and then I'll talk about some of the standardized microbiota based therapies that are in clinical development at this time and where the exciting data is in 2020. And Let's start with a patient case, and this is very similar to some of the cases that we had seen earlier today. A 70-year-old man who lived at home otherwise got cephalexin for five days for cellulitis, and as it happens in some patients, three days later, developed diarrhea, test positive procedure using the guidelines we the patient of vancomycin to respond about three weeks later Diarrhea returns, you diagnose the person as recurrent C. of infection. You think about recurrence prevention, you initiate fedaxomycin and add intravenous bezlotoxumab. But unfortunately, has another episode. And this is a person who has three or more episodes and they call you and ask you, what are my options now? And options at this time include either fecal transplantation or clinical trials for microbiome restoration therapies to prevent future episodes from happening. So, when you think about a patient who is in the hospital or in your outpatient clinic and you're considering fecal transplantation after their third or fourth episode, the first step usually is to start an antibiotic to bring their active symptoms under control. Typically, with antibiotics, diarrhea would improve in about three to five days. And the risk of recurrence after three episodes when you stop antibiotic therapy is about 60%. And when you start antibiotics, you think about how do you prevent these recurrences and you discuss recurrence prevention strategies with these patients. The best option that's out there right now is to restore the gut microbiome. And there are several centers in the country that either perform clinical fecal transplantations or have clinical trials of microbiome restoration therapies. If you have somebody in the hospital, the majority of patients actually get discharged prior to getting fecal transplantation. and it's important to continue them on vancomycin while you wait for fecal transplantation to happen, so that they do not get recurrent diarrhea between now and the fecal transplantation. In 2020, if somebody has had multiple recurrent C. infection, fecal transplantation is the cornerstone of management of recurrent C. infection. So, what's well known for fecal transplantation? You know that cases and uh, clinical trials of fecal transplantation have shown that the efficacy is 85% or higher to prevent recurrent infection. It's been shown to be superior to oral vancomycin. Fresh or free thought stool has similar efficacy. There's no donor effect on efficacy, meaning most donors who undergo a rigorous screening uh, protocols uh, lead to great eradication of C. diff infection. However, we still need rec- standardization of donor recruitment. There are very few recipient contraindications, such as neutropenia, or sometimes toxic megacolon. We still need long-term follow-up data from fecal transplantation as more and more adverse events are being reported. And then for the last seven years, the FDA guidance on fecal transplantation remains to be in the draft phase, but the FDA allows us to use fecal transplantation as an experimental therapy for management of recurrency disinfection. COVID-19, as we've heard this morning, has impacted a lot of things, including fecal transplantation. And one needs to keep in mind that fecal transplantation is dependent on procurement of school from well-screened, healthy donors. These donors have to undergo health and exposure questions, school tests for enteric pathogens and also multidrug or infections, and then they need to be screened for HIV, viral hepatitis, syphilis, and other Tests in the blood. We have seen some serious adverse events in the transmission of infectious agents from donors who are asymptomatic. These include capable of ESBL bacteremia, where fecal transplantation was being done experimentally for an indication other than C disinfection. And then also enteropathogenic and sugar toxin E. coli have been transmitted with fecal transplantation. Additionally, COVID-19 can be transmitted via stool. SARS-CoV-2 is a virus that can be present in stool and we need to check our donors for presence of COVID-19 to make sure we're not transferring that with sequel transplantation. So lots of challenges that are happening with fecal transplantation in today's world, which begs the point that we probably need standardization of microbiome-based therapies to uh, overcome some of these challenges that fecal transplantation has. So there are several microbiome restoration therapies because standardized therapies that are in clinical development. I'll go over the data of some of those. I'll divide them into capsules which are donor-derived, so there are three of those. And then there is a synthetic capsule, which is not donor-derived, and the, the bacteria are grown in a lab, and then there is an NMF formulation, which is donor-derived. And these are all standardized microbiome-based therapies where one batch is similar to the other, and the process of development of these therapies is standardized. So going alphabetically, CP101 is a full-spectrum microbiota, we really don't know the uh, all manufacturing and formulation details. It has undergone a phase two study of two hundred and six patients comparing it to placebo and primary outcome was proportion of patients with no CDF recurrence at eight weeks and also they looked at twenty four weeks. Looked at adverse events data also. These data were recently presented at ACG twenty twenty and the active drug had a seventy four point five percent cure rate compared to sixty one point five for placebo with a significant uh, C value. Next, moving on, we have another uh, capsule-based therapy, rbx 3455 which is interesting. An interesting therapy as it is a lyophilized and it's therapy that can be used at room temperature and is stable at room temperature. This was efficacious in a phase one study where patients with at least one recurrence after a primary episode were enrolled. This was a prospective single center dose-finding study where patients received either four capsules twice a day for four days or four capsules twice a day for two days or two capsules twice a day for two days, and the overall success rate was 90%, and uh, we did not see any major adverse events uh, which, uh, with this formulation either. The advantage of this formulation is being room temperature stable, you can do multiple-day dosing in patients' homes, and this does not have to be stored at minus 80 degrees. The third capsule that's been out there and, be, and now has completed phase three data is c 109. This is a standardized microbiota product and has 50 species of Firmicutes. And I know that Barbara McGowan is going to talk about this uh, this, uh, this morning too. This is derived from donor stool. These donors undergo standardized screening and uh, stool is frozen at minus 80 and homogenized in saline. You treat this with ethanol to reduce the risk of pathogen transmission and it's filled into capsules at minus 80. This removes all the vegetative forms and gram negatives, your risk of transmission of infections really goes down. This is standardized in the form of four concentration. There was an initial phase one study done with this which showed a 97% resolution rate in an open label phase one study of 30 patients. Data were then taken to do a phase two study which did not show statistical significance or clinical difference between Series 109 and placebo, as you can see with the graph on the right, where the resolution rates were similar in placebo and Series 109. And the difference here probably is the fact that perhaps some patients who didn't have C. diff infection and potentially had post-infection IBS got enrolled in the study accidentally or inadvertently and leads to uh, The point that was made earlier today was that an accurate diagnosis of P. infection is very important when you are enrolling patients in clinical trials and also in clinical practice. Lessons were learned from this, and a large Phase three trial was conducted, and data were presented recently at ACG 2020. This was a trial of 182 patients where four capsules were given... uh, against placebo, and these are all patients who had a positive stool C. diff toxin for enrollment. These patients had received antibiotics before you get the series 109 or placebo, and the cure rates were very similar to what was seen in phase one study, approaching 89% in the series 109 arm and less than 60% in the placebo arm. One needs to keep in mind that when you see a 60% cure rate in the placebo arm, it is not reflective of placebo, it's reflective of the advances that have been made in the antibiotic therapies for C. disinfection infection with the updated guidelines, meaning using using finaxomycin, using nancomycin paper earlier on, and we're seeing better success rates with just antibiotic therapies. So with all of this, the FDA has granted CDs online both a breakthrough therapy and orphan drug designation. Moving on now to the enema-based therapies, RBX2660 is the only enema-based therapy that's out there. This is a microbiota suspension derived from donor stool And 50 grams of stool is taken into 150 cc's of saline and polyethylene glycol, and every unit has approximately 10 to the seventh live organisms per mL. It's completed phase one and phase two studies, and also has completed phase three studies, and we have some initial readouts from the phase three studies, which is very exciting. I'll go over the donor program of RBX2660, and this is an example of the donor program of uh, which is very similar to some of the other donor programs that are out there. And it's important to note that these donor programs are standardized, and the units can be traced back from a patient to a donor in case an adverse event happens. So for we 2660 660, donors undergo health and lifestyle assessment and enrollment in at every duration. Battery of stool tests and blood tests, including HIV, hepatitis C. difficile, multiple viruses, and enteric pathogens are tested every time at donation. Donations are pooled with samples from the same donors and they're subjected to repeat stool testing at least every 45 days. Stool can be stored at minus 80 after processing and the enema bags are stored prior to shipment and can be stored at room temperature for up to two days. These are traceable to specific donors and recipients. So these are data from the Phase 2 placebo-controlled study where RBX2660 was more effective than placebo for the secondary endpoint. These, uh, this clinical trial was designed where two doses of rbx 2660 was compared to two doses of placebo and to one dose of rbx 2660 Two doses had a 61% cure rate compared to 46% in placebo, but one dose had a 67% cure rate compared to 46% placebo, making this statistically significant. Now these cure rates are different from what you see sometimes in open-labeled studies, and that is because the endpoints are much stringent uh, in in controlled trials, and you universally see lower cure rates in controlled trials. When you combine the controlled cure rates to open label, because a lot of these patients who actually failed the trial uh, received open, study, open label study drug, and you saw that the, you see a lot that the overall success rate was close to 89% when you combine the blinded and the open label experience in all of the arms of this particular study. RBX2660 also underwent a large uh, open-labeled safety study compared to historical controls as was presented earlier today, and over 132 RBX2660 patients were compared to 110 controls, and the success rate of 79% was seen compared to 52% in controls. There were no significant difference in adverse events that were seen in RBX2660 compared to controls, uh, signifying this to be a very safe therapy. So this was then taken to a phase three trial. This was two arms, placebo versus one enema, patients with two or more episodes of C. diff infection. And the primary outcome was aggregate 2660 60 success compared to placebo at eight weeks. And adverse events and quality of life were also measured. We've heard, with the press release, that the phase three data are positive, and we're still awaiting final numbers to be released. With all of this, the FDA has granted RBX 2660 breakthrough therapy fast track and orphan drug and designation. And then finally, a synthetic capsule-based therapy, V303, is in phase two trials at this time. This is a rationally defined live bacterial consortia. These bacteria are grown in a lab and not dependent on donor stool. There is a trial that's going on to delineate safety and efficacy of V303 at preventing subsequent death compared to placebo in patients who had at least one successful course of antibiotics for C. diff and high risk of recurrence or patients with recurrent C. diff infection. There's three arms in this study, high-dose VE303, low-dose VE303, and placebo, and hopefully in the next six to 12 months we will see a readout from this particular drug also. And then finally, the FDA has granted VE303 and often drug designation like some of the other drugs that have been given this designation. So in summary, I have a one-line summary that microbiome restoration therapies appear to be safe and effective for management of recurrent C. disinfection. But where is this going forward? What's going to happen in the next 12 months or so? I think we're going to see more and more data from CP101 being published, and we'll probably see a larger phase 3 trial. We'll probably see a larger trial of rbx 455 which will be placebo-controlled. Hopefully, the results from the ve 33 studies should be available in the next 6 to 12 months, we're eagerly awaiting the scientific publications from rbx 2660 and phase 109, and I'm hoping that one or both of these products would get FDA approval. And then finally, we're hoping with these products coming uh, to to light and getting FDA approval that we will see some movement on the guidance of, of the FDA for fetal transplantation, and I'm really hopeful that the approved products will replace traditional FMT, which right now has many challenges due to COVID-19, and also the scarce availability of FMT with OpenBiome reducing its operations and not able to provide stool at this time. And uh, with this, I would say thank you very much for your attention.
1: Thank you for joining us today. We wish to acknowledge the organizations around the globe dedicated to improving health through research and developing new products to address C. difficile infection prevention, treatments, clinical trials, protecting the gut microbiome. Diagnostics and Environmental Safety Worldwide. To learn more about clinical trials focused on C. diff infections and recurrent C. diff infections, prevention and treatments, please visit the C. diff foundation's website, www.cdifffoundation.org. Clinical trials in progress. Help them to help you to help others. We send out our well wishes to all patients being treated for and recovering from a C. diff infection and the many wellness draining illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, with our reminder none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health, continued healing, and a good day.